in this series that we're calling Among Us. And last week we started in on the first chapter of the Gospel of John. And this week we're continuing um, on that. Actually, I'm going to do a little bit of a leapfrog today. I'm going to jump ahead a bit. Last week we covered the first four verses of John 1. This week we're going to tackle verses 10 through 14. And then next week... Um, We're going to come back to the middle, and Pastor Paul is going to talk to us about the light that shines in the darkness. And then Christmas Eve, my message is called The Gift. And I just want to remind you again and challenge you, encourage you, think about who God might be having you invite to Christmas Eve services. You know, I said that last week, and it was kind of like a spirit thing. I didn't plan on saying that. I just said, you know, think of some, if you were here, I said, just pray about one person that God would want you to invite. And so as soon as I said that, I started thinking, well, who's that person for me? Um, Because I actually really do try to live out what I preach on Sundays, not, not always successfully, but, mo- but a lot of the time. Um, and I knew, Amy and I ended up in this conversation with a woman who lives across the street from us, one of our neighbors who we love, at the grocery store. And I just felt like the Spirit was saying, you should invite her. So I don't know if she'll come or not, but it was cool how when you ask God, he tends to answer. Um, we don't always think that or believe that he will, but he really does. So who would God ask you to invite this year? I think it's going to be a really great uh, Christmas Eve here at Cedar Mill. But today, we're going to continue in John chapter 1. So I want to dive in. Um, we're going to start in verse 10. I'm going to read through verse 14. Here we go. He, that's Jesus, was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, But his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This morning, there's so much to say in these passages, and yet I want to lift out um, what I believe John wants us to hear today, and that's this. The problem Christmas solves, the solution Christmas offers, and then finally the response that Christmas requires. That's what John is going to offer us today. So first of all, the problem Christmas solves. John begins our passage this morning with two Statements, two statements that should, that should strike us, that should rattle us, that should, should grab our attention. First, he says, the world did not recognize him. That's, again, talking about Jesus. The world did not recognize him. And then his own did not receive him. The world did not recognize him, and even his own did not receive him. And here's what I want you to see, just in a general sense, as we dive in. As John talks about the problem, as he talks about what is wrong in our world, in us, in humanity, in you and me, he talks about the problem in very relational terms. He says, here's the problem. We have become disconnected from God. He's not someone that we receive. He's not someone we welcome. He's not even someone we recognize anymore. He shows up on our doorstep and we can't even tell that it's him. John is telling us here that there has, there's been this division, this divide, this disconnect between us and God. And, and the word that we often use 
to describe the thing that disconnects us or separates us from God is the word sin. That's right. I knew most of you. It was on the tip of your tongues, wasn't it? Like four of you got it, and the rest of you were just being humble and shy. Didn't want to be know-it-alls, right? Yeah. Sin. Sin is the thing that separates us from God. Jesus comes to save us from our sins. Sin is that term for the thing that, that pulls us away from the Lord. But when we think about sin, when you and I use the word sin or when it's offered to us, what we most often think about is simply doing bad stuff. We kind of have a Sunday school, six-year-old definition of sin. Sinning is not doing what you're supposed to do. Sinning is breaking the rules. But friends, I want us to notice today that John, and I think the entire scripture is really, but John certainly does not talk about sin in this way. For John, sin is not just a rule that's been broken. It's a relationship that's been discounted. John says, the problem isn't just that you've done some bad stuff. The problem isn't that you've broken some rules, but that you're disconnected from God and your relationship with him is no longer right. It's no longer the relationship that God wants it to be. Let me show you that this theme runs all throughout the scriptures, all the way back to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3. The very start of the Bible, when sin first entered the world, you remember the scene, right? Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, in paradise, and everything is wonderful. Everything is the way it is supposed to be, perfect contentment and perfect joy and perfect peace. And God, who's offered them this amazing reality, gives them only one rule, he says. One rule, don't Eat from that one tree. Now, stop for just a moment and imagine that. One rule for your entire life. How glorious would that be? If you only had to follow one single rule. Doesn't that sound great? I do not love rules. I'm not a rule follower by nature. I am a rule breaker. I want to push back and push against every single rule out there. And our world is riddled with rules. In fact, just driving here this morning, you probably had to follow like 20 or 30 rules Put on your seatbelt. Don't text while you drive. Don't go too fast. Don't go too slow. Stay in your lane. Use your blinker. Don't make a phone call. Eyes on the road. Stop on red. Go on green. Accelerate through yellow. (laughs) I mean, the rules in our world never, ever end. Can you imagine a life, an existence with just one rule? And yeah, and you're saying they broke the rule. And so sin is the breaking of a rule. But is it? Friends, go a little deeper with me for a minute. Have you ever asked the question, why does God even have the rule? I mean, why did he even have to put that stupid tree in the garden anyway? I mean, why did he do it? Have you ever wondered? Here's why. Without that tree there would have been no way for Adam and Eve to have a relationship with God where he was God, where he was God in their lives. You see, without that rule to follow, without that law to obey, 
Adam and Eve would have had no way to express, God, you do call the shots. You do set the boundaries. You make the rules. God, you are in charge. I'll say it this way. There's no way of determining if children are obedient until they are asked to obey, right? Kids are all just the same until you, you offer a rule, you give a challenge, you set a boundary, you make a rule, and then you find out the kids that will obey and the kids that won't. And so by following the rule, by choosing not to eat from the tree, Adam and Eve were saying, yes, God, you are God. You are Lord and King and Father, and we are your children, they were accepting the relationship that God offered them. Him as father, them as children. He's dad, they're the kids. The, the, the relationship is very clear and it's a good relationship. But when Adam and Eve disobeyed, when they decided to eat the fruit, they weren't just breaking a rule. They were in a sense saying, we're tired of being your kids. They were discounting the relationship. They were saying, we're tired of you calling the shots and bossing us around. And friends, John, what he's telling us in our text today is that we've been discounting our relationship with God ever since. We've been rebellious children just like Adam and Eve were ever since. He's saying at the heart of our sin, at the heart of every sin, isn't just that we break rules or do bad things, but if you whittle back and you go further and you go deeper, you'll find this. At the heart of every sin is this fact. We don't want to let God be God. We do not accept the terms that he is the father and we are the children. At the heart of it is this statement that we don't trust him to guide and direct our lives the way we want them to go. Instead, we say, we'll do what we want. I'll live how I want. I'll determine what is right and wrong for myself. Dad, I don't need you telling me what to do anymore. Some of you have heard that from your kids. Some of you have said that to your dad. It's exactly what John is reminding us here. At the center, at the middle of the problem is this relational disconnect, this relational disregard, this breaking of the terms of relationship with God. Look at verse 10. It says, the world was created by him, but they wouldn't recognize him as creator. And verse 11, it says, he came to his own. What's that mean, actually? It means this. It means we're owned. He came to those he owned, and yet they wouldn't acknowledge him as the owner. No, God, I don't like the terms of the relationship that you're creator and I'm created, that you're owner and I'm the one who you own. No. John says, here's the problem. We've discounted the relationship with God that we were created to have, that he is the father and we are the children, that he is God and we are not. And if that's the problem, by the way, friends, that Christmas solves, then let's look at the solution that Christmas offers. Listen to these words. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's probably the most loaded sentence in all of scripture. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Last week we talked about that term, the word. It's the Greek word logos. And we talked about what it meant to the Greeks. 
and how that, that term logos would have really kind of challenged the Greek mind and way of thinking. It really, there's a lot of depth and richness to what John is saying here as he preaches to his Greek audience. But John is also preaching to a Jewish audience. And for the Jew, this term logos, or the word of God, it was a very important concept. You see, all throughout the Old Testament, when God reveals himself, he always does it through his word. He speaks all of creation into existence. It says all throughout the scriptures, thus saith the Lord, as God reveals himself, it's when he says something. It says the Lord spoke, all throughout the Old Testament, the Lord spoke, or the word of the Lord came to, and then fill in the blank with so many different people. The word of the Lord came to this person and this person. So for the Jews, the word of the Lord was nothing short of the revelation of God himself. It was how he revealed himself, how he disclosed himself to his people. It was how he stayed connected to his people. How did he do it? Through his word. That's how they would know him. And when you think about it, by the way, that just on a practical level makes perfect sense, right? I mean, a person's word is the clearest revelation of who they are. Consider it this way. If you study a person, if you, if you sort of observe them from a distance, you'll notice some things about them. You can learn some things. You can learn some stuff. But you don't really know them fully until you meet them, until you have a conversation. This has happened to you. I know it has because it's happened to me. You've heard about someone, right? Maybe you've been around them in a general way. You've observed them from a distance, and you've formed some opinions, you form some opinions through your observation, through the opinions of others, through what you've heard. But then one day you finally meet them. You sit down and you exchange some words. You have a conversation and you say to yourself, or maybe you even go away and say to someone else, you know, I always thought so-and-so was like this, but I talked with them today and I'm realizing that they're actually like this. And most of the time you're pleasantly surprised. Sometimes you're sorely disappointed, right? But, but you have a new impression after you've exchanged words. This is how it was for me when I met my wife. Um, and by the way, she's not in here today. She's teaching Sunday school, so I can say whatever I want right now. Let's just keep this part in the worship center. Um, she generally doesn't listen to the podcast. Um, uh, no, I met my wife when we were sophomores in high school. I moved to the town where she lived, and our sophomore year in high school, we kind of ran in different crowds. One of us was more popular than the other. I won't say who. It was her. At any rate, um, and I observed her from a distance, and I was friends with people that were friends with her and that had known her throughout her childhood, and so I got to know her from a distance. But then our junior year, we met. We ended up in some classes together, and we connected, and we started to talk, and all of a sudden, I realized that all these impressions I had about Amy Bridges weren't 100% true, and she was actually not just this person. She was this person. And I started to fall in love with her, and the rest is history. And that's another story slash sermon slash novel. At any rate, um, John is telling us, friends, don't miss this point, that Jesus Christ is the word of God, the revelation of God made flesh, become flesh, that he's come not just so that we can hear about God or kind of know him from a distance, but so that we can know God again personally. You see, here's what he's saying. He's saying, for a relational problem, God is offering a relational solution. 
It's not a transaction. Jesus doesn't come to perform a transaction where he like pays the debt for your sin and it just goes home. No, it's a relational solution to a relational problem that in Jesus, God is taking the distance that's between us, us and him, humanity and him, you and him, and he's erasing it. This is why John says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, if you were a first century Jew and you read this sentence in Greek, something that would just like punch you in the nose is this, is this last word, made his dwelling among us. Made his dwelling. It's one word. It's the word skenao, skenao. And it's a Greek word that literally means tabernacled. It's kind of a funky word, but it's a word that the Jews knew about because in the Old Testament, the tabernacle was the place where God's presence was found. It was where his glory rested. It's where they would go to meet him and encounter him. And John says, the glory and presence of God once found in this tabernacle is now found in a person, in the person of Jesus Christ. And you can meet him and you can know him and you can hug him and you can shake his hand. You see, Christmas is so radical because it is the end of religion as the world has always known it. Christmas says, what you used to go to a place to, to earn, you now receive for free in a person. In fact, there's a theologian by the name of Dick Lucas who wrote this imaginary conversation between a Christian and the early church talking to a pagan neighbor, a non-Christian neighbor, and the conversation goes this way. Ah, the neighbor says, I hear you are a Christian, great. Where is your temple or holy place? We don't have a temple, replies the Christian. Jesus is our temple. No temple? But where do your priests work and do their rituals? Well... We don't have priests to mediate the presence of God, replies the Christian. Jesus is our priest. No priests? But where do you offer your sacrifices to acquire the favor of your God? We don't need a sacrifice, replies the Christian. Jesus is our sacrifice. What kind of religion is this, sputters the pagan neighbor. And the answer is, it's no kind of religion at all. You see, religion says, here is what you need to do in order to be acceptable or good enough or to be received by God. Jesus says, that is not how it works. I have made you good enough. I have made you good enough for free through no effort of your own. So now that you're good enough, let's have a relationship. Now that you're already acceptable because of what have I've done for you, let's, let's get together and know each other. Let's reestablish the terms of how we relate. You see, friends, another thing we notice here is that a tabernacle, this word that John uses, that he tabernacles among us, it wasn't a fancy building, a tabernacle. Actually, do you know what a tabernacle was? It was a glorified tent. It's another way to translate this word, skenao. It technically means to pitch your tent, right? The word became flesh and pitched a tent. You see, if you, if you moved into my neighborhood and you built yourself a house and you surrounded that house by big high walls and you put a giant metal gate up to control who could come in and who could go out, you'd be saying something to me about the kind of relationship you want to have with me and the rest of the neighborhood. But this is not the image that John uses. 
He doesn't say the word became flesh and built a castle down the street with the drawbridge and a big wide moat to keep the riffraff away. No, on the contrary, he says this. He says, the word became flesh and pitched a tent among us. One author I read this week said it this way, and it's a little crude, but I think it's, it illustrates the point perfectly. If you came and pitched your tent in my backyard, I would assume you were going to be using my bathroom, right? That's pretty intimate, isn't it? When someone just comes in and wants to use your bathroom. Friends, Christmas is God pitching his tent in the backyard of humanity, it's, it's a statement that he wants to have dealings with us. He wants to know us. He wants to be close. He wants to be intimate. He wants to reestablish the relationship that we lost in the garden oh so many centuries ago. It's this statement that he still, in spite of all that you've done and not done, longs to be your heavenly father. So if that's the solution that Christmas offers, then the final question is, what is the response that Christmas requires? And it's a wonderful response. It's right here in the middle of our passage, verse 12. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children. You see, if the problem is that the relationship has been discarded and disconnected, and the solution is that God has come near to us personally to be with us, then our response, the right response, the only response is to believe and receive. Now, let me tell you what John means by these two words. He says, to those who believed in his name. And there are a couple issues here for us. First of all, when we hear the word believed, we often think of intellectual agreement to those who believed in his name. They, they, they agreed intellectually. For us, belief is about intellect and facts. We believe that two plus two equals four. We believe that E equals MC squared. We believe that Pastor Dave's sermons are tremendously insightful. These are just facts, factual things. Don't get lost on that, sorry. Um, See, for us, the word believe is something we do with our minds. But this word in the New Testament in Greek is actually the verb form of the word faith. Same word. It's the verb form of the word faith. Faith can be a noun, this thing you have, but faith can be a verb, this thing that you do. That's the word here, the verb for faith. It means having faith. It means doing faith. When John says believe, he's talking about something we don't just do with our minds, but with our entire lives, with everything that we are. So perhaps a more helpful translation is to trust or have confidence in. To those who actively trust in his name. To those who put their confidence in action in his name. And in the ancient world, by the way, friends, friends a person's name, it's kind of a weird thing, like you trust in his name instead of just in him. Why are they saying that? A person's name in the ancient world carried all the weight of who they were and what they'd done. 
So when you attach a person's name to something, it was in a sense a way of saying, you know this person, you know who they are, you know all that they've done, and this is their will. This is what they want. I'm attaching their name to it because it's what they want. So a soldier, for example, might come and say, in the name of Caesar, I order you to disperse. And if you lived in the first century, you would get the heck out of Dodge because you know who Caesar was, you know what he'd done, and if it was his will for you to leave, you'd probably leave because you knew what was coming if you didn't, right? His name and the name of Caesar. This is also why we're told to pray in the name of Jesus. You'll notice this, that Christians pray, and a lot of Christians will pray, and at the end they say, in Jesus' name. I'm actually convinced that most, most Christians don't know what that means, <laughs> Uh, that we say it because we know we're supposed to, and the Bible says to pray in Jesus' name, but, but when we say that, we're not 100% sure of what all that entails. So I'm going to tell you today, um, when we pray in Jesus' name, what we're saying is, this prayer is offered with the power and authority of Jesus Christ himself, and it's also submitted to the will of Jesus Christ himself. It's what he wants, it's to say. I always like to say, when we pray in Jesus' name, we are essentially saying, Jesus, anything I've said that you'd sign your name to, may it be so with your authority, right? Like, I, I've, I pray, sometimes I pray, and I just, like, I pray for this and this and for this person, and I'm talking to God about a lot of stuff. At the end, I say, in Jesus' name. That's my way of saying, God, anything I've said that you agree with, that aligns up with what you want in your will, then you execute that with your authority. And the stuff that doesn't line up with you, the stuff that was just me and my own human flesh and sinfulness, just stick that aside. Whatever you'd sign your name to, Jesus, receive that stuff with your authority. So back to John, to those who believed in his name. In other words, to those who actively trust the authority and will of Jesus in their lives. I'll say that again. To those who actively trust the authority and will of Jesus in their lives. That's That's bigger and more robust, isn't it? It's harder to put on the shelf. To those who are willing to go back to the kind of relationship where God is God, where we trust him to call the shots, where he is our father and we are the children. You see, John is telling us that Jesus has come to take us back to the kind of relationship we lost in the garden. He's come so that you and I can be adopted as children of the father once more, so that once again, we can just be his kids. We can move away from our rebellion and we can be children of the king again. And then, in in an amazing way, he tells us how? How can you become a child of the king? And listen, listen to this part because it's where most religious people, where most people in churches, where a lot of people who call themselves Christians get it wrong. He doesn't say you can become a child of the king by trying really, really hard from this point forward to obey him. You used to not obey him, but now you need to try extra hard and really obey him. And by the way, now there's not just 10 rules, I mean one rule, there's 10 rules right? Actually, there's more. But he also doesn't say, do a better job than Adam and Eve did at following the rules. No, here's what he says. Here's how you can become a child of the king. He says, to all who did receive him. 
Receive him. You see, again, this whole thing is not about morality and rules and trying extra hard to be a good person. It's about allowing Christ to infiltrate your life. It's about inviting Jesus in. It's about receiving him as king and savior and Lord and friend. And when you do that, friends, when you do that, rule following will happen. Rules will follow. Morality will follow. You will start to become a more morally in line with God person. Transformation in your life will be a byproduct of him being in your life. But the order is really important. It's not I'm working hard for transformation so that he will come into my life. It's invite him into your life and he will work the transformation in you. Let me give you an example. I'll close with this, but And this example was powerful for me this week, and I think it illustrates the heart of what John is saying and the heart of the gospel. If you lived in a one-bedroom apartment, I want you to imagine, some of you do, some of you have, some of you never have, but you've been in one probably before. Imagine that you live in a one-bedroom apartment, and one day while you're gone, I decide to let an elephant just come in and hang out in your apartment all day long. Just... Be in your home all day when, there's, when you're not there and I just leave him there and it's just your apartment with a giant elephant, like a huge one, a giant one from Africa with the huge tusks attached, right? The huge, you know, ivory things. Yeah, totally. You got the picture, right? So check this out. Even if later that night when you came home, the elephant was already gone, chances are you'd look around and you would know that that elephant had been there. There would be some signs. There would be some evidence of that elephant's presence in your apartment all day long, alone, with no supervision. Shelves would be knocked over. Furniture would be moved. Probably some new doorways that hadn't been there before would have emerged, right? That elephant's presence would have changed your apartment according to his will. Friends, how much more so if the great God of the universe decided to come in and make his home in your life. Don't you think that if you invited him in, if you received him, if he he would move some things around in your soul according to his will? Don't you think if the great God of the universe lived in you, he'd start to push back fear? He'd begin to stomp out shame, that he wouldn't begin to, that he'd begin to arrange your heart towards generosity and peace and patience and hope and humility. Don't you think he'd slam his big giant tusks up against your insecurity and your pride and your greed? Don't you think he would start to make some changes in you according to his will? You see, there is no way for an all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present, fully loving Lord to move into your life and not start to shift some things around in you. You see, what most of us think is this, that God is coming, Jesus is coming, prepare for Christmas, Christ is coming into the world, I gotta get the house cleaned, I gotta get the furniture in just the right place, I gotta get some decorations on the wall, friends, and here's what John is saying, John is saying, it is not your job to move the furniture, it's his, he wants to arrange the furniture the way he wants it, it's not your job to move it, it's his, your job is to invite him in and give him full access, put the furniture wherever you want it, Jesus, 
Whatever paintings you want on the wall, Jesus, they're yours. Put a doorway wherever you want, elephant Jesus, because you're going to have your way in me, right? That's the response, friends, that Christmas requires. Christmas says, you must receive your king. Not fix yourself up for your king, not earn the affections of your king, just receive your king, just invite him in, that your heart would prepare him room. Let every heart prepare him room. Let every heart invite him in. Let every heart say, do your work in me, that Jesus would find a home in your life and that he'd begin to rearrange you from the inside out. That's the call of Christmas. That's the challenge of Christmas. You see, Jesus comes and he says, this is no religion at all. This is a work of God in you. This is a new relationship. This is a God who wants to dwell with you and in you and as close to you as he possibly can. That's the response of Christmas. That's the desire of our God's heart. It's a relational problem. It's a relational solution. And it's our job to simply invite God in. And so let me ask you this morning, with everything that I have, have you invited Jesus into your life? Not just in a generic way, not just in a way of saying, yeah, I believe he's God. Yeah, I believe he died on the cross. I really want to get my sins forgiven. I want to get my card to heaven because all that stuff is just a byproduct of what God truly wants for you. And that is a relationship. He wants to be invited into your living room. He wants to use your restroom. He wants to know you and live with you and do life with you and call the shots for you and arrange the furniture in your life in a way that you can never arrange it for yourself, in a way that will bring you joy and peace and meaning and hope and satisfaction in a way you will never find on your own in this world. That's what he longs for. And so let me ask you again, have you invited Jesus into your life? Have you asked him into your heart? Have you made, have you prepared him room. Maybe you're here this morning, you've never done that before. I just encourage you. It's not complicated. It just, it's an act of humility. It's an act of surrender of just saying, God, I'm tired of being in control. I'm tired of putting the furniture where I want to. I just invite you in. You just take control. You be Lord. You be King. I want to be the kid again. I'm inviting you to be my father. Maybe you're here and you've said that before and it's been years. And at one point in your life, maybe he did come in, maybe he started rearranging some stuff, but then your sin nature took over and you started going, you know, sometimes it's hard when he rearranges the front. I want to put my own decorations on the wall. And you started moving them out and you changed the locks on the door and you said, Jesus, you can be in my life, but you got to be, you got to be out here. I got to have you at an arm's distance. I need to have control. Maybe this Christmas season, it's time to sort of assess how in is he? How close are we? Is he really dwelling in my life the way he longs to be? And here's the beautiful thing about God. Even if he's been in before and you've kicked him out and he's been in again and you've kicked him out, maybe you've, you've, you've got your life locked up this way. He's allowed in this room and this room and this room, but there's a few rooms of my life. I don't want him going anywhere near. You see, he's always knocking on those doors. He always wants to come in. He always wants more of you. Actually, he wants all of you because he loves you. Consider again this morning where you're at, where are you at in your relationship with Jesus? 
in just a minute, Allie and the team are going to come forward, and Allie's going to sing for us a song. It's a song that she wrote. It's off of her Christmas album. And we just want to let you use it as a time of reflection, to really think, to think seriously. Right now, today, in this season, where are you at in your relationship with God, with your relationship with Christ? So Allie's going to sing, and then we're going to have a chance to sing and respond. But it's a big question. It's a serious question. It's a question that every person needs to ask. How in is Jesus in my life? Father, today, we love you. We thank you. We thank you for this word that is so old and yet relevant and real and living and active in the way it changes us and transforms us and brings us into your presence. I pray, Lord, that you would take these words that have been spoken today and that you would shape them and conform them and push them into every heart in this room that needs to hear them. We love you, Lord. We thank you for making a way. We thank you for never giving up on us. We thank you for the way that you want to know us fully. We pray it all in your name, Jesus. Amen.